Thank you now, Father, for this time where we open your Bible and we receive what you have for us today to be encouraged, to be exhorted, to be strengthened in our walk, to be renewed in our faith, to grow in our confidence before you as your children. Father, thank you for the times in which we live, and though they are difficult, we thank you for the great opportunities that are before us as we live for Jesus as we are the salt and the light that you've called us to be, as we raise our children to be productive, fruitful, fruit-bearing believers in this era and time, may our boys and girls grow up to be like Daniel. Now touch our hearts and open our minds and change our lives through the preaching of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a kid, I used to like to watch... The Flintstones. I don't even know if they're still on anymore. I think that a lot of the cartoons today are pretty weird. Um, I can't figure them out. I don't get them. Um, but I know that when my son has a chance to watch them, he just sits spellbound by them. But do you remember uh, Fred and Barney? And when they would sometimes get in their car with the stone wheels and the rag top, that it would sometimes, and they were going to go somewhere real fast, they would kind of back up first, and then they would go zoom, right? Remember that? they kind of get their feet going, and it would be a whirl, and, and they would back up. This Sunday, today, we're going to back up, and then we're going, okay? And it kind of like, okay, we're getting ready to go, because it's been a long time since we've been in the book of Genesis. And I want to kind of just challenge our hearts today with some things I've been thinking about, and I want to orient you a little bit as to why we're going to do what we're, do, what we're going to do in the weeks ahead in in Genesis 1 and 2. We will be looking at some of Genesis 1 and 2 today, but I want to kind of have a long introduction today for the next four or five weeks as we begin what I'm considering to be sort of a, a cultural series where the Word of God is going to come in and collide with the world around us. To orient our thinking to the direction I want to go, I ask you to please return to Daniel chapter 1 with me. And I want you to see and I want you to think and imagine that Daniel would be your son. And let's say that Daniel is 18 or 19 years old and he has basically lived in your home through his elementary and high school years and now it's time for him to launch. And at this time... In Daniel's life, of course, he gets moved away from home, not to go to West Virginia University or wherever, but he gets moved away from home because his country has come under siege and God is allowing uh, Nebuchadnezzar to sweep down from the north to come and take over Jerusalem. And you notice when I read that it said that he came and uh, Jehoiakim the king was delivered over into his hands because of his godlessness, because of their turning away from following Almighty God in obedience. also says that he captured some of the, the implements, the items, out of uh, the, the temple and they carried them back to Babylonia. That would be basically think in terms of present-day Iraq. Um, Babylon would be basically Baghdad. Just think of it in those terms. That's the, the location. And most of us now have a sense of a geographical orientation. And you can kind of picture what it would take for a king on camels and donkeys and horseback to come down from Baghdad and to go and siege Jerusalem. And uh, at this time, it was a divided kingdom. And at this point, Daniel was carried off 
uh, here into this time of exile. Here he is, 18, 19 years old, taken from home, along with some other just the choice young people of Jerusalem to be uh, what we're going to see. Number one, there, there's a complete relocation. Verse 2, look what it says. These he carried off, and uh, uh, in, along with the articles from the temple, came and besieged it. Verse 2 then took them, put them in the treasure house of his God. And then verse 3, the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, the high-end young people. Verse 4, young men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to, they were relocated, they were to be reoriented, and indoctrinated. Notice what happens. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. Most of you know this story quite well and you can kind of picture it. You've heard this through the years. But just imagine if this was your son. Just imagine. What a horrible thing really happened here. And now he's been taken away, he's removed from family, he's plopped down in the middle of a whole new culture. I mean, you talk about a new paradigm for living. You talk about a dramatic, immediate culture shift taking place in a young man's life. Kabam, kaboom, there it is. If this was your 18-year-old, if this was your 19-year-old, how would they handle it? I want you to notice then that he's offered the finest that Babylonia has to offer. We'll encapsulate that with just the phrase that's used in the passage, the king's wine and the king's food. It's all the king's education. It's everything about uh, Babylon that is good, the educational system. These are some of the leading thinkers of this day. And uh, they were very sophisticated by any standard and by any culture's measurements. And here they are. For this time of reorientation and I think it provides for us a picture of an illustration of a collision of cultures and I just love it here where Daniel speaks up to Ashpenaz and says you know you kind of see them all lined up there getting looked over and checking their teeth out and and so forth and Daniel kind of raises his hand gets Ashpenaz's attention and says hey um, I've got a problem. I don't want to eat the king's meat and drink the king's wine. Ashpenaz has taken him aback because he's been delegated the responsibility of this whole reorientation, this whole re-education process, this whole preparation process to prepare them to serve in the king's palace. And the Bible makes clear that Daniel was among the eunuchs. And it was probably at this time that he was literally physically castrated. So he was stripped of his masculinity in that sense. They did that to prepare him to serve in the king's court where there were lots of distractions and beautiful women and so forth. And they became less threatening to the king on a lot of fronts. And this was a way to bring them under and Daniel says, I have a conviction. I don't fit into this system. 
He's even given a pagan name. Now, I think it's fascinating that Daniel was able, when he was far away from home, when he was with a group of people who evidently the majority of his peer group who was taken out of Jerusalem gave in to the system, did not stand up against the system, and allowed themselves, evidently in some level of brokenness, to reorient to the Babylonian way. And it evidently was just four young men, Daniel and these three uh, Hebrew friends of his that we know best by their pagan names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but it's Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And these four young men together made a pact that they were not going to conform to the new system. They challenged Ashpenaz, and then they go into this vegetarian diet. You have to understand that part of the reason Daniel did this was out of conviction before the Lord, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because he did not want to violate the dietary rules of, under the law. And what they were eating up here probably were a lot of birds and a lot of beasts that maybe they had a split hoof, but they didn't chew the cud and they were off limits to Hebrew young men. They were drinking fruit of the vine in a way that uh, these young men did refuse to do to violate their body, to violate their convictions, to violate the standards of the Word of God to the Israelite people. And so we have here in this passage by way of an orientation, a picture of young people who refused to reorient, who refused to press into the pattern and mold of the world. I wonder how well our young people would do in this situation today. With all the opportunities we have to influence and impact the lives of young people, we have clear, specific warnings in the Word of God that we are not to fit into the world system around us. We're heading to Genesis. Just bear with me and just kind of go around the block with me as we kind of back up and then we're going to go in cultures in conflict. If ever there's a picture of cultures in conflict, it is Daniel, Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah together standing against the culture. You'll notice, in, as we read too, that God really blessed them for it, didn't He? And then we have the great stories throughout the book of Daniel how God continued to use them the rest of their lives in high political offices to impact the culture for good. Even to the degree where many, many years later, after Daniel was thrown in the den of lions, where the king comes and he says, the whole country is going to worship the living and one true God because of Daniel's testimony. If Daniel had given in here, he never would have had the lifelong influence that he had. What a difficult cultural situation he was in. I would like to suggest today that um, we have a similar orientation as this in our country. And it is the great grand tradition we have of sending our young people off to university. If ever there is a format... If ever there is a system designed to reorient Christian young people away from their biblical worldview, it is our secular world, our secular university system. I'm not saying you can't get a good education at a university. I'm not saying you can't become a productive surgeon, 
I have been around some of the finest that the, that the university systems have produced, and they have highly impacted my family for good with some of the surgeries they can do and the things that they did. Not too many of which I could discern were believers in the Lord Christ. But as we raise up our young children and then we release them at age 18 or 19 to go off to a pagan culture, and you're naive to believe that if you think a WVU or a UVA or a University of Maryland are not the most base pagan pools of culture that you can find, you don't know what's going on on these campuses. And if you think the Ashpenazes are not there waiting to reorient them, you're kidding yourself. And you talk about cultures in conflict from a Bible church orientation to a secular university classroom, I'm telling you, our young people have a huge task at hand to stand up against that. Let me remind you, let's just take a minute and flip through our Bibles to three phrases that are given to us to resist the world. We're talking about the world without God, the world system around us. 1 John chapter 2. These verses are fairly familiar to you but, and to many of you, but let's just take a look. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Look what the warning is here. John says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Isn't that a great phrase? There's warning number one to, our, to all of us and to our young people. Do not love the world. I think Daniel heard this at his home. I think that Daniel, though this wasn't written yet then, and this is New Testament teaching, Daniel was taught to love the Lord his God with all his heart and all his soul and all his mind and might. Do not love this system around us. And that presents a challenge, and we're not going to talk about that very much right now other than to just heed the general warning that we live in a world system that it's easy to fall in love with it. I had four teenage boys staying at my home this week and three campers, four staff and three campers. They were my nephews and nieces and two friends' kids who came in. And Janet sat on the couch and covered up and just took it all in. And uh, we had a great time at sports camp. So a lot of work fixing lunch for all those kids. And uh, we had a good time. In the evenings in my living room, those kids um, would play video games and watch movies. It was interesting to watch them decide which movie they were going to watch. A couple of the boys brought their pack of DVDs with them. And they just laid around. They were tired. And after the young kids would go to bed, these teenagers wanted to watch a movie. Uh, two different nights they did that. I never said anything to them out loud, but, and, and I, I didn't get to the point where I felt like I needed to. I almost did. But I just kind of watched them. And I watched their keen interest in an orientation of the world, Christian young men from fine homes. And it, it scared me. It's probably a little bit why I'm inter going the way I am this morning. And I thought, 
These are some of the finest kids in the world, really, from fine Christian homes. And they sat and watched movies that were so stupid it was mind-boggling. One of them was Elf. I never saw it before. I mean, if you like Elf, that's fine with you, I guess. But what I was struck by was the drive in these young men, the, the love that they had for this material. They loved watching these movies. They loved talking about these movies. They loved talking about their music, not all Christian. And I thought, what a mind game we're playing here. And as I, in half a day, sat on the couch and rubbed Janet's feet and, and watched Elf underneath my glasses and finally took off my glasses and just kind of watched in the fuzz, <laughs> I thought, this is a powerfully educating program. It was just unbelievable. I think there's a good point in there somewhere. It struck me that it was interesting that it was the second movie of the week that I saw where it began with men who had children that they didn't know that they had. Elf is this, a real human up with the Santa's elves up north, and his father back in New York City didn't know that he had, it, had fathered him in an illicit relationship. It was the second movie that started that way that those boys watched that week. And I thought, look at all the things that are being taught in this movie. And they're not even taking it in, in, the, in their orientation. How much we love that kind of stuff. And by the time it was all done, I was just sitting there thinking, that was like one of the stupidest things I've ever seen in my whole life. Why do we like that stuff? Because we love the world. And the world has a way of just making everything cool to us. It's amazing, isn't it? It's like, that was a fun movie. That was a stupid movie. Tell yourself the truth. We just love the things of the world, even in the Christian camp. Well, I, I'm getting, I'm digressing. Secondly, Romans chapter 12. Look at verse 2. I, I was supposed to breeze through these verses right here. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Take a look. Romans 12, 2. And you know the phrase I'm after here. The first one, 1 John chapter 2, he says... Do not love the world. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. So when you are in Christ, you have the grand task of reconfiguring yourself away from the world. This system around us that is not always difficult, it's not always easy to sort out what's okay and what's not okay. You know, the world plays baseball and so forth. How much do I love this? What do I do? How am I different as a Christian? But I'm talking more of a worldview. And he says, do not conform any longer. That's what Daniel did. Daniel said, uh-oh, I'm feeling the pressure here. I feel some people trying to conform me to the image of this world, and I refuse to be conformed to this world. I'm looking for people who refuse to be conformed to this world. That's a, that's a more difficult task than you've would realize even in church world because why? Because we love for the world to look at us and say, what a relevant church. And if we are viewed as irrelevant to the world, we're embarrassed. 
because so many people don't believe what God's Word teaches in our culture and the culture has redefined for us what is right and what is wrong. Let me give you some more examples on this. I have spent a lot of time in the hospital in the last three weeks and so I had cable television. And on this hospital system of cable, the only news network that they had on there was CNN. And CNN runs scrolls reports over and over and over. It was interesting to me to see the number of article, uh, a, a number of issues that came up that were so diametrically opposed to the world, to, to the biblical orientation that I hold in, with God's word. And, and to see a drift in our world. And there were samplings, and it's not always the norm. There was a story this week that I noticed about 10 times got psyched cycled through the system on cable. I was there two days this week, and it was um, this group of high school girls up in Massachusetts who banded together supposedly in this club where to be a part of this groupie, you had to be pregnant. And I think there's like 17 of them last year that got together and made a pact to get pregnant together and raise their children out of wedlock together. Now, I, think, I hope that's not the norm. I don't think it's the norm but I think it's interesting uh, that even though our world doesn't really adjust to that, and even the CNN people were saying, wow, can you believe this, um, that we, the school was adjusting to it, providing daycare, accepting, and so forth. I heard more than once in the last three weeks um, on the presidential candidates, and I heard one article and one commentary a few weeks ago where one of our leading presidential candidates said that he had two young daughters and he really believed that we needed to have Roe v. Wade in place so that when his daughters were teenagers, they would have the right to choose an abortion if they needed one. And he's one of the leading party candidates for president of the United States of America. Okay. I think that's really an incredible worldview. It doesn't fit with what I understand my Bible to teach. This week, along the same topic, it circulated through the FBC email that the Care Pregnancy Center was counseling a young woman and asking for prayer to stand with them that she would not have an abortion. And then the, then the news went around the next day that she had indeed followed through with it. You certainly couldn't have missed the news story in the last week. This one has been probably the dominant story, uh, apart from the floods along the Mississippi, about the California Supreme Court changing the law on marriage in the state of California. Now you say, why, where are you going with all this? We've talked about Daniel not conforming. Okay, We're not to love the world. We're not to conform to the world. One more verse, and then we're going to go to Genesis and review the verses, and when we're done. Colossians, and we're, we're backing up and we're getting ready to run next week. Colossians chapter 3, uh, excuse me, not, not chapter 3, Colossians chapter 2, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter 2, and verse 8, Colossians 2 verse 8, the Apostle Paul warns the Colossian believers and us, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies which depend on human tradition and the basic principles of what? Of this world. 
rather than Christ. There is a clear warning to not be deceived by the philosophies, the thinking, the orientation of this world. That would be those who are oriented outside of Christ, outside of a biblical worldview. There are three specific warnings. Do not love the world, do not conform to the world, and do not be deceived by the thinking of the world. And Daniel survived. If Daniel can do it, we can do it. Now, I've laid a groundwork because I want you to see something now in the, in the Word where the Word of God and the world collide. And I want you in your mind's eye to put in two columns, the world says, but the Bible says. Okay, and we're going to have to turn to a couple verses in our Bible. So, but the first thing I want you to do is I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 1, where Genesis 1 and 2, where chapter 2 starts. Put your hand or your bulletin in there as so that you can go right back to it. And then we're going to turn to a couple other verses as well. The first one being in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. All right? Now just hang with me for a minute. And I'm building a case for a series of messages that we're going to do out of Genesis chapter 2 in the next few weeks on cultures in conflict, how our worldview matters. All right? We are called out ones. We are aliens. We are strangers. When we get to know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are no longer part of this world. We're not to love the world. We're not to conform to the world. We're not to be deceived by the thinking of the world. And yet I'm afraid that at large, the Christian community thinks a lot more like the world than not. And that bothers me. And that's why we're going to camp on some themes that you might have never thought of out of Genesis chapter 2. But I'm going to show you why they're there. Some we've already reviewed. Column number one over here is the world says the earth is billions and billions of years old and started with the Big Bang. We camped on that for several weeks. The Bible says that God spoke it into existence in six days. Six 24-hour literal days. Go to our local university here at Shepherd College and say that to the biology professors and they will laugh at you and mock you and say you're out of your ever-loving mind. I have in my, I, I get a big kick out of reading, do you get the, the, uh, the Shepherd's Good News, Good Newspaper? It's really not, but that's what it's called. And the reason I, it is like unbelievable the things that are in here. Like there's a local pastor in Shepherdstown, he's pastor of a church there in Shepherdstown. This is a public paper, so I'm not slamming him, I'm just promoting his paper. And he says, in, in a whole article about, to, to graduates about Genesis chapter 1, he says, and this is the latest one, this is summer of 08, he says in, in, that, uh, in the beginning of Genesis that it is the mythic tale of creation from Genesis. He says it comes out of the heart and the art of the great ancestors, whoever that is. It's a myth, he says. Okay? It's a myth. This is a local pastor over there. He does not believe that Genesis 1 is true. All right, we've already talked about that. We go over here to uh, the later in the paper, and one of the college professors, a guy named Mark Madison, teaches environmental history and environmental ethics at Shepherd University. And I'll not go through the whole thing, but basically he's talking about how we have to have a whole new paradigm of looking at the world because of climate change. And he says that anybody who doesn't believe in climate change and what I'm, it's a secondary comment that caught my eye. It says, if you don't believe in climate change, you now need to be relegated to the, quote, kook corner with the intelligent design people. Okay? 
So if you believe that there was an intelligent designer somewhere, you're a kook. And you need to go get in the corner and talk about, talk about polar bears not dying off with all the people who don't believe in climate change. And while you're at it, talk about why we ought to drill for more oil. You're a kook. All right? All right. I'm a kook. 1 Corinthians 1 says I'm a fool for Jesus. I'll be that. And we've got to be wise in these matters. But my point is, in Genesis, the Word of God says something very specifically, and the world says something else. Which side are you on? What side do you believe? In Genesis, you got Genesis marked. Turn to Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. And now I'm getting to the heart of the matter of what I wanted to challenge us with as we move into this cultural series for the next few weeks. Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. Notice what it says on the topic of marriage. In this column over here, the world says very strongly, and, and even in the highest offices of the land now in our culture, that marriage can be between any two consenting individuals. Two women, two men, whatever. That's marriage. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19 in the Word of God. Over here, the Word of God says, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them, what? Male and female. And He said, For this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He's defining marriage. I ask you a question, where did he just quote from? Where did Jesus just quote from? Genesis 1.27. Look there, you should have it marked. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. There are other verses, but for sake of time, we'll, we'll skip it in Genesis. Jesus is quoting Genesis to answer a question about marriage in his day. It had to do with the topic of divorce, not homosexuality. But I'm warning you, in about two weeks, we're going to have a message out of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 on the matter of homosexuality in our culture. When Jesus defined marriage, it was between a man and a woman. Our world is redefining marriage as between any two consenting adults. That's unbelievable. Don't think that doesn't impact the minds of our children and our young people. It's on the news everywhere. I noticed in those movies and other movies that I've been seeing lately how highly impacting the background scenes, women kissing women, men kissing men, normal street scenes, homosexuals holding hands, walking down the street. It's in the background of almost every movie you see now. It's in our culture. The Bible says, no way. Matthew chapter 19, again, verse 6. The world says over here, if you want a divorce, get a divorce. Jesus says in Matthew 19, verse 6, so they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. What did Jesus just quote from? Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. You can see it there. Over here, the world says gender roles are neutral. Over in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 2, turn there, please. Notice what it says. Notice what Paul says. 1 Timothy chapter 2, 
In verse 11, notice what he says. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. 1 Timothy 2.11 I do not permit a man... I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. You say, what in the world is Paul talking about? And then he goes on and look what he says. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and propriety. You say, what in the world does that passage mean? I don't know, but if words mean anything, it means that gender roles are not neutral. And does the Apostle Paul mean what he says? Is the Apostle Paul relevant for today? The world says, bah humbug. Paul quoted what? Genesis chapter 3. There's something that happened. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Look what it says. The world says, gender roles are neutral. The Bible says, verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He goes on to, to illustrate and to amplify. And then he says, for we are all members of one body, of his body, verse 30, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And he goes on, right in the middle of of describing roles in marriage, what does he quote? He quotes Genesis chapter 2. Wow. There's one other topic that I think is interesting. Turn to Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. And this is found in the beginning of Genesis chapter 2, but you're turning to Exodus chapter 20. I hope you followed my logic a little bit here. Exodus chapter 20. Notice what it says. This is where God gave this, the Ten Commandments to Moses to guide His people. And in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, look what He says. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your sons or daughters, son or daughter, nor your manservant, maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates, Notice now what he uses for his argument. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Now notice the next phrase. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Look at the first few verses of Genesis chapter 2 now. Verse 2, Genesis chapter 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Isn't that interesting? You say, wait a minute. Why do I mow my lawn on Saturday and come to church on Sunday? What's he talking about here? The world says over here, Sunday's my day to read the paper, drink a cup of coffee, and be whoever I want to be. Go to the ball game. The church has basically bought into it. But the Bible says there's a holy day. How does that fit into the grid? We're going to have a message about that. You see, we have cultures in conflict, folks. We have the world saying all kinds of things, and then throughout Scripture, 
on the issue of feminism. And there is an issue called evangelical feminism that has swept through the church in America. And you're going to say, oh, Pastor Van, why are you talking about that? Because Genesis talks about it. Paul quotes Genesis to talk about how to run the church. And if you don't believe those words, what, believe, what words will you believe? Divorce and remarriage is pandemic in the church, just like it is in the world. What is that all about? When Jesus was asked by the Pharisees about divorce and remarriage, he quoted Genesis. When God gives the Ten Commandments and tells us how to structure our lives, he quotes Genesis. He goes to the pattern of creation. Homosexuality and homosexual marriage. Jesus quotes Genesis. Jesus believed Genesis. Do you? Listen, it's a time for courage. It's a time for conviction. And it's a time to have the character to stand up in a world that wants to marginalize Bible-believing Christians. I doubt that most of you are aware of the momentum of this kind of a movement and how it has impacted the evangelical church in America. There are so many pastors and big-name people who are very popular right now who refuse to make public statements about homosexuality, who refuse to talk about gender roles. Well, isn't it too controversial? Come and hear these messages, because we're going to talk about it. We're going to see, well, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible really say about the role of men and the role of women, about masculinity and about femininity? Does it matter? About divorce, about remarriage, about the Sunday and Sabbath issues, and should one day be different? And is it okay to go to the ballpark on Sunday or not? And what is the Lord's Day? And what does it mean that He made a day holy? And when did that change, or did it change? Listen. The world wants to press you into its mold, and the world is very attractive. It's easy to do. Our challenge is, do you dare to be like Daniel? Do you dare to stand up and have the courage and the conviction and the character to believe God's Word even when it collides with the world? Don't love this world. Don't conform to this world. And don't be deceived by the philosophies of this world because they are so contrary to God's Word. I don't know. We might, we might empty some pews. I don't know. I'm trying not to be a radical. I'm trying to just teach God's Word. But I have been seeing so many things in the news and so many things in the church at large that I think we must address in the next three or four weeks some of these issues. Next week, the issue of evangelical feminism. Okay? Two weeks from today, Lord willing, we will deal with the topic of homosexuality and we will up the age of junior church that week and remind you. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for the great testimony of Daniel and how though he was pressed in on every front that he refused to reorient, he refused to re-educate, and he stood by his convictions based upon your word. And Lord, in our world today, we have so many things whirling around us and it is becoming so acceptable around us for things to happen and behavioral patterns that are completely contrary to what your word teaches. So would you help us to have an understanding of what your word teaches, to understand why these things are true, and then to lovingly, gently, but with great compassion and conviction to live out these truths in a lost and dying world. 
It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.